And now, another episode of Radio Yesterday, brought to you by ChuckChat.com. Warner Audio Video Entertainment presents Batman, the Ultimate Evil. If Paris is the city of light, what then is Gotham? From its downtown government center, where buildings crowd each other like subway passengers, to its midtown glitz of luxury hotels and four-star restaurants casually dispersed among ultra-ultra shops, to the uptown splendor of its high-rise co-ops and condos, Gotham stands as an international symbol of cosmopolitan success. Airline pilots love to bank low over the city before landing at Gotham Airport, treating the passengers avidly lining the windows to the magnificent skyline. Viewed from above, Gotham by night resembles nothing so much as a ribbon of diamonds artfully arranged on a pad of deep, rich black velvet. But closer to ground zero, the view changes. The black velvet has an illumination all its own. The cold, garish neon of the sex industry, the feverish light in the dead eyes of desperate drug addicts, the inadequate streetlights creating pools of shadow in which muggers patiently wait. Deeper down in the crosstown depths of the city, the only light is artificial, as man-made as evil itself. And the only language spoken is the unspeakable. The mid-rise apartment complex stood proudly just inside the ribbon of light, two blocks over from the crosstown darkness. The two-block safety cushion was called Border Town by the good citizens who walked through it on their way to work every day, but the cops who patrolled it at night called it by another name, the DMZ. The developer of the complex had received a massive tax break from the city council in exchange for his pledge to create a highly prized area of urban green. Three of the apartment buildings were constructed at a slight angle to the street, so that their intersection formed a triangle. The developer emphasized the triangle theme with a concrete walkway surrounding a patch of grass. The walkway was dotted with wrought iron benches. Don't tell me about the Ginza! Don't tell me about Hong Kong! The developer had bragged at a black tie party for one of his wife's pet charities. Maybe there are cities where they rent for a few bucks more per square foot, but when it comes to the bottom line, Gotham is king of the heap. For what I got for building those dinky little plazas the city council loves so much, you'd have to cover the ground with uranium to make it worth any more. What do people use the plazas for, a young woman asked. Huh? Damned if I know, the developer said. The developer's words joined the whisper stream that flowed throughout the city, blending with other voices, other words. In the plaza, a man looked up, but not at the sky. Lying on his back on one of the decorative wrought iron benches with only a padding of discarded newspapers as a mattress, the homeless man watched the geometric pattern made by the random lighting of windows in the apartment complex. His eyes filmed with sadness as he recalled the time when he too lived among the strivers, a proud member of the middle class, upwardly mobile, aspiring to wealth, driven by an insatiable ambition to acquire... what? Things, the homeless man thought to himself, just things, inanimate, temporary things. They had never lasted long, 
Neither did the pleasure each new acquisition had so alluringly promised. The whisper streams flowed unimpeded throughout Gotham, vacuuming bits and pieces into their depths, cascading into a dark river of rumor, innuendo, mystery, and myth. If the homeless man's gaze had taken a slightly higher arc, if his distance vision had been sufficiently sharp, he might have locked eyes with a creature of the night, a shadow-shrouded figure watching from a perch atop the mid-rise building. He might have seen the Batman. Or, more correctly, he might have seen a gray-and-black-clad figure, a caped and cowled masterpiece of urban camouflage. He might have seen a presence. Despite the thousands of criminals the Batman had faced in his years of subterranean combat, not a single person could claim to have seen the man behind the mask. The Batman was a hyperhuman phenomenon, a living ghost skillfully surfing the whisper stream throughout Gotham's underworld, a terror to terrorists. The whisper streams swirled into the Triangular Park, a temporary delta in an infinite river. The Batman had followed the stream patiently. Now he willed himself into a rest state, slowing his heart and lungs, going quietly inside himself, no longer using just his eyes, but his whole body as a sensor. They would come soon. The Batman knew this, and for all his scientific knowledge, for all his sophisticated machinery, he could not have said precisely how he knew. The homeless man took out a crumpled cigarette, his last one. He scratched behind his ear, ruefully remembering how he used to enjoy a rich Cuban cigar every night with a glass of claret before he retired to his bedroom. Looking for a match, old man? The homeless man sat up suddenly, seeing the three teenagers standing a few feet away, their leather-jacketed bodies forming a triangle as though to mock the plaza itself. The homeless man was paralyzed with fear. Leave me alone, he shouted, but the shout came out a whine, low-pitched and weak, a goad to the gang. The leader, the one who spoke first, snapped his fingers. A flame shot out, almost a foot high. The flame made another of the boys giggle, a high-pitched cackle as jagged as broken glass. The third youth pulled a plastic squeeze bottle from inside his jacket. The homeless man knew what was inside that bottle. He would have known even if the sharp smell of gasoline hadn't filled the plaza. Bum-burning, they called it. The latest sadistic entertainment for the random violence youth gangs that stalked parts of Gotham. It was easy enough. You find a homeless person sleeping, you douse him with gasoline, then you toss on a flaming match and watch the fun. Douse him, Raj, the giggler said. The homeless man covered his face. The gang closed in, the giggler forcing the homeless man's shoulders back against the bench. The homeless man sucked in one last breath to try and scream when... A piece of the night dropped from the sky, landing softly on the ground. The Batman, stalker of predators. It's all over, he said, snapping his flowing cape out with both fists to block all escape, converting it from parachute to shield in the same motion. The opaque eye slots in his cowl burned with a cold fire. Get him, Raj! The leader yelled. The teenager with the plastic squeeze bottle leaped forward, shooting a fine mist of gasoline at the Batman. The crime fighter stood his ground, not moving even when the leader triggered his blowtorch. 
A tongue of flame leaped the gap to the gasoline-soaked masked man. The Batman went up in flames, but two rapid flaps of his cape extinguished the blaze as quickly as it had begun, and the Batman stood as he stood before, as inexorable as death itself. The homeless man watched in amazement as the gang leader dropped his blowtorch and raised his hands. The one they had called Raj tossed away his squeeze bottle and followed suit. But the giggler pulled a gun. The chrome semi-automatic pistol gleamed in his hand. Another psychotic giggle escaped his lips as he leveled the weapon at the still-standing Batman. Let's see you laugh this one off, he shouted. As the giggler squeezed the trigger, the Batman flicked his left hand. His black cape moved in that direction, but his body was already in motion to the right. The Batman hit the ground in a modified forward roll. A boot slammed into the giggler's chest, knocking him backward. The gun discharged into the air. The Batman rolled smoothly to his feet, looking down at the giggler. The young man was holding his ribcage and whimpering. After that, it only took a quick call on the Batman's direct link transmitter to bring a pair of squad cars to the plaza. As the police pulled up, the Batman vanished into the night leaving only a profoundly moved homeless man to explain the three handcuffed terrorists. It was not enough. Maybe it would never be enough. Even as the Batmobile headed for home under cover of darkness, sliding smoothly through a series of switchbacks on a rarely used country road, the masked man at the wheel was bombarded with intrusive thoughts. Always the same theme. In the war between criminals and crusaders, only the criminals found a perpetually renewable source of troops. It was like swimming toward the horizon, the Batman thought bitterly. But if you stop swimming, you drown. Inside the Batcave, there was a faint hiss as the canopy retracted so that the Batman could climb out. The crime fighter started for the elevator which would carry him up and out out of the Batcave and into another life. Suddenly, he stopped and went over to the console of a giant mainframe computer. He sat before the screen and started using the keyboard to ask questions. Are you all right, Master Bruce? The speaker was a tall, dignified man dressed in an immaculate black suit. He was gently shaking the shoulder of the Batman, a look of deep concern on his patrician face. The Batman snapped awake. Uh, I'm fine, Alfred, he said. I was just doing some data analysis. I must have fallen asleep. You came in almost three hours ago, Alfred said. I marked the time when the indicator lights flashed upstairs. I wasn't worried at first, but when I didn't hear from... It's okay, my old friend, the Batman said. I guess I must have gotten lost in my thoughts, that's all. The same thoughts? Alfred asked. Yes, the Batman said, tilting back his cowl as he spoke. But I'm fine. A couple of hours sleep, a quick shower and shave, and I'll be right on time for the museum opening. Whatever you say, sir, Alfred replied, obviously dissatisfied with the response. The Batman opened his mouth as though to explain, but snapped it shut as Alfred turned his back and exited the cave. The Gotham Museum was celebrating a new wing by holding an exclusive viewing before it would be open to the public. Attendance was by invitation only. Engraved invitation. The board of directors was sparing no expense, having long since realized that while museums may be intended for the public, it is always private capital that keeps them open. The new wing was to be called Now and Today. 
It would concentrate on current topics of social and cultural importance. The first exhibit, The Greatness of Gotham, was already in place, showing the city's progress from a fur trading outpost to a riverfront town more noted for its gambling casinos than for its civic achievements, to the thriving megalopolis it was today. Bruce Wayne, billionaire, was always welcome at such events. Indeed, to do otherwise would be to ignore the single largest source of charitable contributions in all of Gotham. Of the four million dollars raised for the new museum wing, Bruce Wayne had personally written a check for five hundred thousand. He strolled aimlessly through the exhibit, shaking hands as many times as a politician, his face a mask of politeness. Gotham had many faces, many facets, but the Gotham so proudly displayed in the new exhibit was a triumph of public relations. It validated the belief that reality is what people are allowed to see, not what actually exists. As Bruce Wayne traversed the exhibit, he felt he was walking a tightrope along that river of diamonds Gotham became when viewed from on high at night. In the museum exhibit, the fringe areas had all been sanitized, or eliminated entirely. Bruce! Oh, Bruce! Over here! He looked toward the source of the genteel shouting and spotted the infamous Diana Dorchester, a woman who fancied herself royalty because her husband's money generated a constant flow of sycophants trailing in her wake. Bruce Wayne slowly made his way over to Dame Diana, as she was called in the gossip columns, dreading the encounter, but seeing it as unavoidable. Oh, Bruce, she trilled, isn't it just beautiful what they've done with the space? Beautiful, he agreed, already looking around for an exit. It is so important to really make a difference, Diana proclaimed in a royal tone. You call this PR stunt making a difference? A sarcastic female voice lanced through the small throng, its barbs aimed directly at Diana Dorchester. The speaker was a young woman striding forward with determination, her white blonde hair flowing behind her, her orange eyes flashing. An albino woman, Bruce Wayne thought. I don't know your name, dear, Diana countered, but I recognize the rhetoric all too well. Each of us must decide for ourselves how we make our civic contribution. The problem is, you want to make that decision for all of us. If you want to feed the homeless or build playgrounds or whatever, you just run along and do it. For myself, I consider the stimulation of civic pride to be a worthy endeavor. This exhibit has nothing to do with civic pride, the albino woman said. The Gotham it shows is your Gotham. It has nothing to do with the way people actually live, but even the idle rich aren't immune from crime, and you can't make that go away with some phony exhibit. Oh, really? Diana hissed. Actually, my dear, everybody knows where crime comes from. From poverty, of course. Anything that improves the image of Gotham attracts investors, and investors mean jobs. Certainly you can... Poverty doesn't cause crime, the albino woman interrupted. People cause crime. Poverty doesn't cause rape. It doesn't cause most murder either. We have to take the... Oh, go find a soapbox, Diana said, dismissing the other woman and turning to her entourage. Shall we move on? There is so much we haven't seen yet. Bruce Wayne watched the group move away, grateful for a moment of peace. But it wasn't to be. The albino woman closed in on him, cheeks slightly flushed with anger. 
How come you didn't move along with the rest of them? She demanded in a ready-for-combat voice. I've seen the exhibits, he replied mildly. Do you believe what she said, that poverty is what causes crime? It's a contributor, Bruce replied, but no rational person believes it's the sole cause. Well, where do you believe it comes from? Well, like I said, it comes from people, I, I know, Bruce said. But don't you feel that's a bit simplistic? The real question is, which people, isn't it? Surprisingly, the exotic-looking woman flashed a dazzling smile. Yes, she said. That is the question. And even though we know the answer, we don't do anything about it. Uh, and the answer is? Children, the woman said. The maltreatment of children is the greatest single contributor to later criminal behavior. Oh, you mean like uh, child abuse, that sort of thing? Yes, Mr. Wayne. I mean exactly that sort of thing, she answered. In fact, that's what I do. I don't understand, Bruce said. You apparently know my name, but I don't... My name is Deborah, she said. Deborah Kane. I'm a caseworker with the Gotham Child Protective Services. How did you get in? <laughs> it was easy enough. My old college roommate was invited. She wasn't going, so I borrowed her invitation. No, he said. I don't mean that. How did you get into your field, I guess? Believe it or not, it was a course I took in college, the woman said. I wanted to be in the Peace Corps, but one of my professors showed us that children right here in Gotham, some of them anyway, are just as oppressed and mistreated as in any third world country. Oh, I'd like to learn more uh, about children and crime, that is, Bruce Wayne said. Could I call you sometime? I'll save you the trouble, the exotic woman said. If this is some kind of... It's no come on, he assured her. The woman regarded the tall, handsome man standing before her, a man who spent more on the suit he was wearing than she earned in a month. But all her innate prejudice against the idle rich vanished when she looked into his eyes. She had seen that look before, a look of deep, elemental pain. Without another word, she wrote a telephone number on the back of her engraved invitation and handed it to Bruce. The Batman's alter ego bowed gravely as to a martial arts instructor. The albino woman returned his bow. Then she turned her back and walked away. Later that night, a pair of nurses were walking from the hospital exit to the parking lot. They had just finished a double shift, so happy to be done, but too tired to care. They were almost to their car when a man wearing a red ski mask blocked their path. Drop your pocketbooks, he commanded, brandishing a machete. The blonde nurse tossed her purse on the ground. Uh, just take it and go away, she said calmly. We don't want any trouble. The robber moved forward, but as he bent to pick up the purse, the brunette nurse threw a sidekick at his head. The robber jumped back just in time to avoid the kick, and the brunette nurse fell to the ground. <laughs> you shouldn't have tried that he snarled. Now it's going to cost you more than money. He raised the machete just as the blonde nurse let out a blood-curdling scream. All the nurses saw was a flash of movement. All they heard was a loud, dry snap, but they both knew what it meant even before the robber's words were choked off into an anguished shriek. The robber fell to the ground as the machete dropped from his nerveless fingers. His useless right arm dangled limply. His face was white with pain. Dawn was breaking as the two nurses told their story to a detective. You're sure? 
the detective asked. We're sure, the brunette nurse answered. It was the Batman. We both saw him. You're saying that Batman... The Batman snapped this guy's arm like a twig and just took off? Yes, the blonde nurse said, an edge of annoyance in her voice. Yes, for the third time. Okay, ladies, okay, the detective surrendered. I'm not saying you didn't see what you saw. He scratched his head in puzzlement. It just doesn't seem like the Batman, that's all. It's not enough, the Batman said to himself, over and over again like a mantra. It's not enough, he said. It's not enough, his alter ego echoed. Sir? Alfred asked, raising an eyebrow. Huh? Bruce Wayne replied, as though awakening from a deep sleep. Uh, sorry, Alfred, I must have been daydreaming. With all respect, Master Bruce, I don't think so. You've been repeating the same thing over and over again for some time now. You keep saying, it's not enough. Are you... I'm fine, Alfred. I just think it's time to make some decisions. May I be of help, sir? I don't think so, old friend. On the other hand, I guess you've already been of help. Of great help, in fact. Do you remember when I was a boy how you cautioned me against trying to solve a problem without adequate data? Of course, Master Bruce. But I don't see how I'm going out, Alfred. I'm going out to gather the data I need. Well, then you'll be needing the Batmobile, sir? No, Alfred. This is one investigation where I can learn more as... as yourself, sir? I'm not sure, Bruce replied, a note of ephemeral sadness running like a thread through his voice. You're serious? Deborah Kane asked into the phone. You really want to go on rounds with me? That's exactly what I want, Bruce Wayne said. If you don't believe it would hinder... It's not that, Deborah Kane replied. I'm just surprised. Nobody ever asked to do that before. Tomorrow night, then? Around six? I'll be there, Bruce Wayne promised. The next night, a pretty ten-year-old named Mary Lou was explaining how she got the inflamed black eye that had first attracted the attention of a school nurse. I didn't want him to hit Scotty, she said. Scotty's just a baby. He could be hurt real bad. Does he uh, hit Scotty a lot? Deborah asked. Sometimes, the child said. When he cries or if he spills something or when he plays too loud. You know, does Daddy hit anybody else? Deborah asked. He, he hits everybody, the child said, obviously puzzled at such a stupid question. You heard enough, the man of the house said, lurching around the corner to the bedroom where Deborah was questioning the child. I think so, Deborah said, closing her notebook. Well, what did she tell you? the man asked, pointing at his daughter. We'll discuss that later, Deborah said crisply. What did you say? the man demanded, leaning menacingly over his daughter. Answer me. Nothing, Daddy. I... The man backhanded the child, sailing her backwards over the small bed. Deborah jumped up, placing her body between the little girl and her father. The man who Deborah thought of as Bruce Wayne moved so quickly that he seemed to simply materialize at the man's side, one comforting hand on the man's neck. Uh, we're going in the other room, he said to Deborah, just to get ourselves calmed down. Isn't that right? He said to the man. 
All the man felt was pain, lancing white needles of pain. All the man knew was that when he nodded his head quietly, the pain went away. Later, sitting downstairs in the car, Bruce Wayne asked, What's uh, going to happen to them? It's a close decision, Deborah said. There's no question but that he beats the children, and his wife as well. They all say he isn't usually like this, only when he's drinking, and since he lost his job, he's been drinking a lot. I know it looks ugly to you, but it's really a Category 1 case. Category 1? Yes, Deborah said. Essentially, it means people who are doing inadequate parenting. Sometimes they just don't know how to be a parent. How would a 13-year-old girl know how to be a mother? She's not done with being a child. Other times people know, but they're so overwhelmed by their own problems they don't think about anyone else. Take that man upstairs. I grant you he's no prize package, but his real problem is unemployment, and that's not something we can fix. He kept saying, They used to respect me, Bruce Wayne told her. And that's what he kept saying over and over. Eight nights later, at the end of a ten-hour shift, Bruce Wayne and Deborah Kane sat across from each other in a back booth of the otherwise unnamed open all-night diner. Deborah was on her third cup of black coffee. Bruce was still nursing his first glass of tea. Is it always like this? he asked. His face, usually a fleshy mask of blandness, was creased with the pain he had seen so many times in the past several nights. Sure, it gets more or less intense, depending on a whole lot of things, but... This is about normal. Normal? Being beaten by a drunk, whipped with an electric cord, scalded down to third-degree burns, left alone for four days with nothing to eat except dry cereal, sodomized by an uncle? All of that and more, Deborah said. It doesn't seem... possible? Human. It doesn't seem human. It's classically human, Bruce. Being a parent means a lot more than giving birth, and a lot of people haven't gone much beyond that. Remember the first case I went on with you? You said it was a Category 1 case, remember? Yes. But what are the other categories? Deborah took another sip of her coffee, choosing her words carefully. Do you remember the one on Baxter Street? Yes. How could I forget? That woman was insane. Imagine thinking she could bake the devilment out of a little child and put him in the oven to do it, Deborah finished. That's category two. Crazy. Genuinely crazy. Like uh, paranoid schizophrenic or um, obsessive-compulsive or any other diagnosis you want. The man in that nice apartment, uh, the one right off the drive, uh, he was category two then? No, Bruce. No, he wasn't. But incest, I mean... With his own daughter, his own little girl. Are you telling me that isn't sick? Well, that's just what I'm telling you. Like most people who have never seen it firsthand, you have sick confused with sickening. What you saw there was a classic Category 3. People who hurt children for their own pleasure and their own profit. It's not sick, Bruce. It's evil. She abruptly got up from the table and walked out. By the time he paid the check and joined her outside, her face was set and composed. I'm sorry, she said. I know you mean well, but I really can't talk about this anymore tonight. Can I, uh, come along again sometime? You really want to do that? I really do. 
Deborah nodded her head slowly. Then she put the car into gear and aimed it for the CPS agency. They wouldn't let him sleep. The children gnawed at the edge of his consciousness, scraping his nerve endings raw, challenging his sense of justice. Bruce Wayne couldn't take it. Alfred, Bruce Wayne said the next day, would you call up the current whereabouts program on the computer? Certainly, Master Bruce. Do we have a subset? Yes. Try convicts in custody first. May I ask who? The middleman. Thanks, Alfred. Not at all, the faithful Alfred replied, his face a study in serenity, a face that effectively hid a growing sense of unease about the man who only came alive as the Batman. Hellgate Prison was a little more than a two-hour drive from the modern glitter of Gotham. In appearance, however, it was light years away. Resting in a natural valley surrounded by gentle rolling hills, it resembled nothing so much as a giant meteor that had slammed into the earth with sufficient force to create a depression. Restricted only to those criminals considered extremely dangerous or an escape risk, Hellgate was the garbage can of the criminal justice system, a max-max institution without pretense. Hellgate was a cage, a cage for beasts. At ground level, a visitor would see only the huge ornamental iron gate that originally gave the prison its name. As if to emphasize that this was the only way out of the maximum security prison, the gate was set between massive stone walls. Four feet thick and twenty feet high, the walls dominated the eye and symbolized the reality. Those inside were shut away from society as completely as any exile. But from his vantage point in the Batmobile near the peak of one of the surrounding hills, the Batman could see inside. Flicking a scope to night vision with a gloved thumb, the crime fighter studied his target. On wide angle, the scope illuminated the coils of concertina wire looping the top of the walls and the guard towers where sharpshooters awaited the rare opportunity to demonstrate their skills. The lens took in the artificial moat at the outer base of the walls, a moat filled with specially trained members of the prison K-9 Corps. There hadn't been a successful escape from Hellgate in two decades. In that time, almost 300 escapes were attempted. With few exceptions, all the convicts were captured before they could scale the wall. The exceptions died trying. The Batman had dedicated his life to fighting crime, a commitment which required a deep understanding of the enemy. Surveillance was not enough. Neither was mastery of underworld slang nor a network of informants. All of those resources were utilized to the fullest, but even their combined total did not add up to a sufficient tactical edge in the endless battle. The crime fighter had gone one step further in his study of the enemy. After years and years of concentrated exposure, the Batman could literally think like a criminal. He could become a criminal in his mind tuning in to another frequency and following the beam to its source. In his mind, he became a desperate convict, looking through the convict's eyes, looking through the bars to the outside world. Even if I could get past the gun towers, even if I could get through the razor wire, the dogs would eat me alive. The Batman knew how the escape-bound convict applies himself with a focus and dedication that would do credit to a nuclear physicist. He thinks of nothing else. Day after day, he poses one hypothesis after another, 
field testing the equations with his eyes and ears. The Batman dropped deeper into the mind of the escape-obsessed prisoner. He slowed his heartbeat to open the channel, not forcing, letting it happen, waiting with the patience of stone, asking, how can I get out of here? Images flickered on his brain screen. Bribery, corruption, blackmail. All possibilities, none of them a sure thing. Parole, commutation, pardon. The Batman's convict mind chuckled mirthlessly. Fat chance, his mind sneered. What then? Surrender? Just quietly serve your sentence? This time the chuckle was a sarcastic sneer. There must be. Yes. The Batman snapped out of his convict persona in a flash. His mind immediately refocused to the hunt. He quickly tapped a series of micro-buttons in the Batmobile's overhead console, watching the view screen with interest as the image shifted. A small green LED blinked rapidly. A message appeared at the bottom right of the screen. Probe. Sonar. Engagement in progress. Please wait. A long, narrow panel opened at the rear of the Batmobile. A tiny black tube appeared in the opening. Then it launched into the night, popping open flexible metallic wings as it glided toward the prison. Two more of the probes followed. The screen message showed, Triangulation in progress. Please wait. In less than 30 seconds, the screen showed a diagram of the prison in profile. The Batman leaned forward as the three sonar probes converged to show him an ultrasound image of the ground below. He slowly exhaled as the screen revealed what he had suspected. A tunnel. A deep, reinforced tunnel running below Hellgate Prison. The probes showed the tunnel had started somewhere in the hospital wing, ran parallel to the prison until it veered sharply left, avoiding the exercise yard in the administration building, heading for the back wall. The Batman scanned the screen, quickly translating the symbols to numbers. The tunnel was approximately 12 feet short of the wall. The Batman once again tapped some console keys, his eyes on the screen. Sylvester Sistrunk, a.k.a. the Middleman. Penal law offenses, criminal solicitation, conspiracy, criminal facilitation, theft, forgery, fraud, gambling offenses, prostitution offenses, disposal of stolen property, money laundering, sentence serving, total all crimes all counts, 1,588 years. Actual time to parole eligibility? Seven years, four months, eleven days. A side view of the prison came up on the screen. The view shifted on its axis, the better to display the wing which housed the middleman. A blinking red arrow pointed at a cell located on the top floor at the far corner. He studied the image for a moment, then typed, Probe. Switch to thermal. Switching. Please wait. After a few seconds, the screen went fluorescent, the images ranging from deep blue to vibrant yellow. The Batman adjusted the probes until he had a fix on the cell's interior. The elongated red splotch was the middleman, obviously lying on his bunk, the flash of yellow at his head. The Batman studied the data as he brought the image as close as the probe's triangulation would permit. Just one more piece of information was needed. Conscious state. Sleep. Depth. REM. So the middleman was deep asleep. Dreaming, in fact. The computer beeped. The Batman's eyes turned toward the screen. Peri-trauma scale available. 
Run? Yes. The Batman's eyes were riveted to the screen. The Perry Trauma Scale was named for Dr. B.D. Perry, shortlisted for next year's Contribution to Humanity Award for his groundbreaking research into the biochemistry of trauma. Dr. Perry's thesis was that deeply traumatized children process information differently than those not so afflicted. One example is the startle reaction, familiar to every social worker, the child who cringes when a hand is raised for a benign purpose is a child who has learned a raised hand means a blow. Sometimes that learning is buried so deeply that no amount of contrary information will change the reaction to the same stimuli. Perry's work was still in progress, but his trauma scale, which measured past trauma recorded, was now used in all child abuse screenings. The new program had just been installed into the Bat computer, and the Batman was eager to test it. He waited patiently. Then, superimposed over the thermal image, the screen read, Perry Trauma Scale B-71-C. N.R. The crime fighter quickly translated B meant the second distinct life stage, somewhere between two and four years of age, depending upon the individual. 71 was the degree of severity. C indicated chronic, as opposed to episodic, and N.R. stood for not repressed. Something had happened to the middleman when he was a young child, something deeply traumatic, and whatever it was, it was still on his mind. The Batman leaned back and touched a button below the steering wheel. The Batmobile's canopy slid open with a faint whoosh. The Batman climbed out and looked down at the prison, shading his eyes from the moonlight. After a long minute, he reached back inside the Batmobile and hit the switches to retrieve the probes, a falconer recalling his birds. Once they were back inside their cages, the Batman opened a large panel and pulled out what looked like a backpack harness. The straps were cleverly designed to precisely match his costume. He slipped the harness over his shoulders, taking care that his cape hung on the outside, completely concealing the backpack from view. Then the Batman stepped to the very edge of a nearby precipice, spread his wings, and dove into the night. The Batman used the titanium-reinforced veins in his cape to adjust for maximum glide. He rode the thermals smoothly, vectoring in. When he was satisfied that he was well launched, the Batman touched off the mini-jet engine strapped to his back. The engine was crafted for maximum portability. It didn't have the thrust to lift a man airborne, only enough to sustain flight once in the air. The Batman swept past the gun towers in a high arc, positioning himself precisely. Using his cape as a modified parachute, the Batman softly descended from the night sky, landing on the prison roof in an acrobatic move no Olympic gymnast could hope to imitate. From his utility belt, the crime fighter pulled a length of bat rope, a special combination of woven fibers that had the flexibility of wire and the tensile strength of a steel cable. He secured the bat rope on the roof, then played out its length until he was standing at the edge. Then he allowed himself to fall forward, at the same time frog-kicking his legs so that when he reached the end of the cable, he was suspended in resting bat position right outside the middleman's cell window. A quick glance confirmed the middleman was still asleep. From his utility belt, the Batman took a flat disc of clear plastic with a fine network of micro-wires running through it. He carefully peeled off the adhesive on one side and plastered it against the glass just inside the heavy bars. The S&R disc, as it was known to emergency services personnel, was originally designed by the Batman to aid in search and rescue efforts. It functioned as a two-way voice amplifier. 
The Batman dialed the disc to its lowest setting, then whispered quietly, Sis drunk, sis drunk, wake up. The sleeping figure stirred. A groggy voice said, Oh, what the... Over here, the Batman whispered. By the window. Hurry up. The middleman sat up, rubbing his eyes. Seeing the blacked area in front of his cell window, he got up and walked toward it. Oh, who's... What? He exclaimed as he recognized the menacing form that had terrorized Gotham's criminals for so long, hanging upside down outside his window. Keep quiet, the Batman whispered. I came here to talk, that's all. The middleman gulped, but quickly regained the composure that had served him so well in his chosen profession. Okay, he said, let's talk. As you can see, I certainly have time for it. You are a facilitator, are you not? The Batman asked. You bring a willing buyer and a willing seller together? That's me, the middleman replied. If you got something you want to move, you come to me. And if you got something you need, you come to me too. All I do is put people together. This is off the record, the Batman whispered. Do you understand what I mean by that? Uh, sure do, the middleman replied, unable to keep the surprise from his voice. Every working criminal knew that when the Batman said something was off the record, he would not give the information to the police. This was a necessary element of law enforcement. Sometimes you let the little fish go in order to catch the sharks. There's a question I want answered, and I'm willing to pay for it. I don't need money, the middleman answered. It's not money. It's something much more valuable. Well, what is it, then? I will not say until you answer my questions, but I promise you what I say is true. The middleman scratched his chin, thinking... It was bizarre how much the underworld trusted its greatest enemy. Every criminal knew that the Batman's word was gold. In fact, any crook would be more likely to trust the Batman's word than that of his associates. Fire away, the middleman said. I have been told, the Batman said quietly, that there is profit, substantial profit, in child abuse. I have been told that for some child abusers, there is both pleasure and profit in what they do. I know there is a market for anything if you know where to look. Leaning closer, the Batman thrust his upside-down cowl closer to the glass. Tell me where to look, he commanded. The middleman turned his back on the window. His face was a fright mask of rage and terror. Sweat poured off his body. The tremors slowly decreased until he felt he had control of himself. He walked back over to his bunk, picked up his pack of cigarettes, stuck one in his mouth, and fired it up. The middleman took a deep drag of his cigarette. Kitty porn, there's a big market for that. It's not that the market's so wide, it's, it's that it's so deep. When one of those freaks, uh, child molesters, baby rapers, uh, pedophiles, whatever you want to call them, if any one of those freaks had enough money, he'd buy all the kitty porn in the world, understand? Hell, the market's so good, there's people in it who ain't freaks themselves. You know what I mean? No. Look, the big drug dealers aren't addicts, right? Same way with kitty porn. It's business, man. What else? Kitty prostitution. That's another big one. Of course, it ain't as profitable as the porn stuff. Kids get used up pretty quick in that life. 
And the last one? The Batman asked. Now, some freaks ain't satisfied with just renting a kid. They want to buy one. To keep? Like a black market adoption? Nah, the middleman sneered. To use, understand? Use any way they want. And when they're done, they just throw them away. You mean... Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. The crime fighter's eyes burned through the bulletproof glass separating him from the middleman. There's a tunnel under the prison. It's almost to the wall. The authorities know about it. Tomorrow is the day they're going to shut it down. Anyone caught in it at the time will be looking at a lot more years in here. I got it, the middleman said. Fair trade, too, just like you said. I will... Hold on, the middleman hissed. Wait a minute, I got something to tell you. The Batman didn't reply. He just remained in position as still as the steel in the window's bars. There's a guy uh, out on the west coast, the middleman said. He arranges tours, sex tours, out of the country. He takes people to places where it's legal to have sex with kids. Charges a fortune for it, too. And he's not the only one. Sex tours are a huge business now. His name is Draco, and you can always find him at a place called the Dragonfire Marina on the coast. His boat is the Lollipop. Tours cost from 15 grand up, depending on what extras you want. Tell him a guy called Lester Tuxley referred you. How can I find... Lester? The middleman replied. Don't worry about Lester. He's in here. If I follow through on this and someone checks... Hey, did I say there'd be a problem? There won't be no problem. You understand? A long minute passed between the two men. Then the Batman reached to pull the SNR disc from the bulletproof glass, preparing to go. Suddenly the middleman placed his palm against the glass, his eyes beseeching. The Batman placed his gloved hand against the glass, palm out, covering the middleman's own. The middleman whispered, Make them pay. Then he quickly took his hand away and turned his back. The master criminal stood in that position for a dozen heartbeats, his whole body trembling. When he turned around again, the Batman was gone.